Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. In this episode, we interview two of the editors and contributors for the new book, Your Computer is on Fire, that launched yesterday, March 9th, from MIT Press. As you may have guessed from the title of this episode, we are so excited to be speaking with Mar Hicks and Kavita Philip. Your Computer is on Fire is a breakthrough collection of essays, which explores how we can begin to fix our broken high-tech infrastructures. This book includes reflections on topics such as decolonizing the internet, sexism as a feature instead of a bug, the non-neutrality of robots, and much, much more. We had the opportunity to read the collection before this interview, and we have to tell you, we cannot recommend this book highly enough. So if you haven't already, go read it and go buy it. You can find the link to get the book in our show notes. Now to introduce our guests for this episode. Mar Hicks is an author, historian, and professor doing research on the history of computing, labor, and how hidden technological dynamics can change the core narratives of the history of computing in unexpected ways. Mar's multiple award-winning book, Programmed Inequality, looks at how the British lost their early lead in computing by discarding women computer workers, and what this cautionary tale tells us about current issues in high tech. Their current project looks at resistance and queerness in the history of technology. Kavita Philip is a historian of science and technology who has written about 19th century environmental knowledge in British India, information technology in post-colonial India, and the intersections of art, science fiction, and social activism with science and technology. She is author of Civilizing Natures and Studies in Unauthorized Reproduction, forthcoming from MIT Press, as well as co-editor of five volumes curating new interdisciplinary work in radical history, art, activism, computing, and public policy. This is one of the episodes where the guests on the show are scholars that we've looked up to for quite a long time and have always wanted to interview individually. And so the fact that we get the opportunity to interview them together about this exciting new collection was just very meaningful for both Jess and I. And one last thing before we start the interview, Dylan, do you know what is happening this week? Is it a certain conference that has to do with fairness, accountability, transparency and that's all the conference has to do with that's all the conference has to do with <laughs> that's, that's, actually, that's actually the name of the conference is fairness accountability and transparency mm-hmm. it is the fact 2021 conference that is currently still happening when this episode airs which and is which is amazing i mean that that the speakers there we've had some honestly it's been really cool for us because some of the people that we've had on the show, like Yeshi Milner from Data for Black Lives, and also Mary Gray, and some other folks. Um, it's been really cool to be like, we talked to you, and now you're keynoting it back. This is amazing. Yeah, it's a little bit unreal. And also, it's a little bit full circle, because the reason why fact is so important to us and to the show is because me and Dylan met at fact last year in Barcelona, back when it was called Fat Star, before they did a timely name change. And if it weren't for this conference, uh, this podcast wouldn't exist. That's right. We traveled all the way to Barcelona 
to meet each other when really we were 30 minutes away here in Colorado. It's always how it works. <laughs> um, but it's, it's very exciting for us to be able to celebrate. The, it's not the anniversary of the show. We'll do a big celebration for that in April. Um, but it is cool to celebrate for this episode, which is such a, a big episode for us, to celebrate the anniversary of the beginning of this journey that became Radical AI. And now that we have been successfully gushy in this intro, it's time to dive right into our interview. We are on the line today with Kavita Philip and Mar Hicks, two editors from the new collection, Your Computer is on Fire, which was just released yesterday on March 9th, 2021. So Kavita and Mar, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Of course. And let's start off by just asking the first question about this collection. And Mar, I'm going to throw it over to you. What is Your Computer is on Fire? Well, it's kind of a weird title. So let me explain what it is. Um, it's a book that's meant to get attention um, for so many of the problems that we're um, you know, facing right now, but problems that have been a really long time in coming. They've been fulminating. They've been sort of um, you know, making ripples before they made waves. And these problems you know, range from things like biased AI to um, racism and sexism in the high-tech industry and all sorts of other things that we've known were big problems for a while, but it wasn't until recently we really started seeing our chickens coming home to roost, so to speak, and realized just what tremendous impacts they were having at all levels of society, you know, not only impacting the groups most directly affected, which is not to say that that isn't very important, it is, but also impacting really everybody, impacting all of our major institutions, impacting our democracy itself. And so the reason the book has this kind of hopefully catchy title is because it's really pitched at um, an audience that is interested in reading about, learning about these problems and thinking about solutions. And that audience wouldn't necessarily be just an academic audience. This audience would probably be everybody from you know, undergrad students to recently graduated folks who work in tech to even people who are not so you know, recently in, um, in school or, or who never uh, went to college who are interested in trying to figure out, okay, where do we go from here? Because for a long time, we were undergoing this period of what got coined the tech lash, but for a long time, it was unclear what the ways out of the mess were. And I think now we have enough expertise, we have enough of a discourse about, okay, not only do we have to do something, but here are specific actions we can take. And there's actually a really long and well-worn set of historical precedents for the sorts of things we need to do when industries overstep their bounds and get overly powerful in this way. So we do have, you know, we do have a playbook, not to say it's going to be easy, but this book is part of hoping to be part of the solution to some of these problems that we're um, facing right now. Well, a couple of notes about audience and context. Um, now that Mars got us thinking about the problem, um, everybody notices the contentiousness and discussions about tech today, right? One of the things the book tries to do is take a step backwards and assume at least for a moment good faith on all sides and give ourselves as writers, as historians, anthropologists, sociologists, activists, 
give ourselves a task. You know, how would you explain this problem historically, but with an eye to its solution, not only with an eye to understanding history for its own sake, but to understanding the society in which we now live. So if the audience context is made of, uh, you know, an intern who works for Google or, or a tech executive who's trying to figure out how to get into emerging markets, so-called, what are the ethical historical questions we'd like them to think about before they get into that big project? Now, if the audience is contentious, on the other hand, the context is amazing. Right now, the context couldn't be better for a book like this. We work in the context of incredibly supportive colleagues, cross-cutting, productive, catalyzing conversations. So in addition to an audience of people that we hope will read this in good faith, uh, we also work with the people not in the book, right? Uh, incredible activist groups all over the world, the Data Justice Lab, Who's Knowledge, um, people who are working in activism in labor and tech, Meredith Whitaker, Lily Irani, Simone Brown, the work of Ruha Benjamin. So even as we're citing so many people in the book itself, uh, we're incredibly fortunate to have gathered such amazing authors. We're also speaking to the people who made these conversations possible in the first place. That's something that's really struck me about uh, this collection too. So I have a personal story about this collection, uh, which is that after we were talking about possibly doing an episode on this, I started looking through the authors of the collection and I uh, saw someone by the name of Dr. Andrea Stanton. And I was like, I just TA'd for you. Uh, so she's a professor of mine at the University of Denver. Um, and it, it just, I started looking through some of the other authors too. And so she's in religious studies, but you have folks from all these different disciplines coming together to talk on uh, these issues. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you curated the collection and then also uh, the importance of having all those different voices represented. Sure. Um, I actually wrote an afterword. Um, we have two introductions and two afterwords because we have four editors and we decided that might be more useful to the reader than having one joint introduction. And so I tried to talk about why we need a difficult interdisciplinary conversation, right? Um, this is why we have people from so many different fields. It's because we're trying to stage the conversation we'd like people to have in their own context. As you pointed out, that professor is in your very university. Perhaps when you TA'd for them, you didn't have this conversation because the topic was, I, I guess, religious history, right? Um, and what we say is that there are a number of errors underneath the conversations we fail to have there are certain errors, and I kind of list the errors that um, we have, uh, we often make when we're trying to have interdisciplinary conversations. And often, when uh, you know Steve Jobs says, "Oh, we need humanists to design computational interfaces," right? What are the kind of things we're assuming about why we should look to the humanities, right? And I made a list of four things we assume: we should appreciate the great books, which means usually the canon of dead white men. We should find mediating brokers to dumb it down, which assumes a dumb audience, which we refuse to do. Third, we should mix and stir, which assumes hermetically sealed static bodies of knowledge in different fields. We can just mix up and stir together. We don't assume that. We assume the fields of tech and humanities fundamentally change when you think them together. And four, we often assume we should, as they say, move fast and break things. We refuse to do that. We move slowly and we try to fix things or to think about how we can collectively fix them. 
And so those those general principles led us to look for the people who would help us have those conversations. Yeah, I really like that story um, and agree with everything that Kavita just said. Um, and it it strikes me, Dylan, that what you experienced was sort of the same thing that we were experiencing as we were trying to write this book and assemble the volume and the people in it. Um, and that's that this is not a problem that is confined to any one field. So it's not confined to CS anymore. It's not confined to the STEM fields. It's not confined to any one or multiple humanities fields. And that's why you see people all over working on these same problems, because essentially what we're facing right now is we're not facing a technological problem. We're facing a problem of infrastructure. We're facing a problem where our techno-social infrastructure and even um, you know, our economic infrastructure, our political infrastructure, it has been so fundamentally changed by the way that technologies have scaled within the past 20 to 30 years that this is an issue that now it's everybody's business to, um, to be talking about this and thinking about this. And that's not to say that everybody has... Um, you know, the same insights, certainly not, or equal, um, you know, kind of equal contributions. But it is to say that, you know, we are seeing some incredibly sharp thinking and um, solutions coming out of fields that I think previously, maybe a decade ago, we wouldn't have even um, thought about as, oh, no, that's where we have to go look for solutions. Or maybe some people would have thought that's exactly where we have to go look for solutions. But the popular discourse was, oh, leave it to Silicon Valley, leave it to CS. They can, you know, they'll work out the bugs eventually if you just give them enough time. And we see that that was a very, very flawed understanding of how you get good infrastructure for a very large and diverse population. In terms of where we look for solutions, I'd love to read a paragraph uh, at the end of Paul Edwards' chapter, Platforms Are Infrastructures on Fire. That's his title. Uh, and he says, you know, this is where we should look for solutions. Quote, if Africa is the Silicon Valley of banking, perhaps we should look for the future of infrastructures there as well as other parts of the global south. Yet, he says, despite the glory of its innovations and the genuine uplift it has brought, this future looks disconcertingly like a large-scale long-term strategy of the neoliberal economic order. By enabling microtransactions to be profitably monetized while collecting the also monetizable data exhaust of previously untapped populations, these systems enroll the, quote, bottom of the pyramid in an algorithmically organized device-driven market-centered society, end quote. And so we also want to say the solutions are where you might not think to look, but when we look there, as in the various parts of Africa that have had French, British, Dutch, Boer, all kinds of colonialism inflicted upon it, and that has come out from a period of decolonization only to be slammed by this new thing we call neoliberalism, and to have data-driven monetization now define their futures, right? What do we gain from that space that teaches us about the future of tech? Not what do we gain from Palo Alto alone? And Kavita, you actually wrote a chapter in, or I guess an essay in the series that's titled, The Internet Will Be Decolonized. And so um, a question I have for you is, what does it mean to decolonize the internet? Great point. And here I took the words out of the mouths of activists 
And so first I want to say, you know, I approach these questions with humility as an academic who learns from people in the field who fight these battles. And what I noticed is there was a conference, just as we were working on this, in South Africa called Decolonizing the Internet, right? And so I looked into it, and in fact, I have an image of the slogan from that conference. And I start out by saying, why are activists using the slogan, Decolonize the Internet, right? Uh, and so I want to think about why activists need us to decolonize the internet rather than why academics might. And I think that gets us around the problem of jargon, right? I mean, so many people find it difficult to approach humanities theory because we seem to use so much self-referential jargon. And I'd like to think of decolonizing the internet in terms of what the internet promised, you know, the utopian solution of knowledge and infrastructure everywhere to everyone what it in fact delivers, right? Very uneven information in an unevenly distributed future. Um, and then think of how the kind of degree of imperialism and imperial institutions shapes the way we access infrastructures. And so for me, decolonization is attention to infrastructures, attention to who's getting knowledge where, and attention to all of the levels of communicative and physical infrastructure in between, the law, um, policy, activism, state governments. Um, and as an example, in the last week, the world has been watching as India rolled out its new internet rules, they're called the IT rules, so they're really about intermediary, intermediary liability, which, which means if you're a big tech company providing infrastructure or an ISP, are you responsible for the content that people put on there, right? So these are highly technical, infrastructural, and, uh, and uh, legalistic questions, right? That have to do with how the domain name system works and whether a government is allowed to break the domain name system in order to, quote unquote, keep its people safe from non-sovereign acts, right? And so to understand what it means to be a citizen of the global south, to be a person living in the wake of imperialism, we have to understand how these infrastructures work. Mara, before we turn to uh, your contribution, um, I do want to start kind of at the beginning. So I think we've gotten a sense of like some of the topics that are covered in this collection. But at the top of it, you do have this introduction that says, when did the fire start? And I'm wondering if we could take a step back and, and talk about that. So we've laid out some of the problem, but like, how have we gotten into this mess in the first place? Yeah, that's something that I talk a bit about in my introduction. And my introduction talks about this course that I teach at my university, which is called Disasters. And it's a global history course that's basically a history of industrialization, if you want to boil it down to its um, less kind of exciting title. But I teach it through the lens of disasters because it helps students see how these problems of technological scale that we're running into right now with computerized technologies are nothing new. These are things that we've seen in the realm of many, many other technologies from industrial manufacturing to even things like public health, like sewage systems. We start with um, the London cholera, in fact, as a case study. And throughout the course, you know, we, we see echoes of the same thing, which is that people have to do a lot of um, sort of literal and figurative shit eating when these new infrastructures come into place 
and they're essentially being beta tested on whole populations. And as Kavita, you know, very eloquently talks about in the book and also has spoken about here, there are these huge differentials of power between nations. And um, these, these differentials of power are, are explicitly leveraged to, in fact, get technologies to scale up more and to become more profitable and to gain more momentum. So, for instance, when you see the harms that, I don't know, for instance, Facebook is doing in other nations, that isn't a coincidence. That is not just a bug in the system. That is actually how these technologies um, start to snowball, start to gain more and more power um, because they're deployed in one context and not really thinking about what the potential causes or the, the potential effects or the potential harms might be in another, say, let's say national context. It makes them tremendously dangerous, but that doesn't mean that what's happening isn't part of the design to get more and more users, to get more and more um, power, to get um, to a point where that technology is infrastructural and indispensable. And what Kavita was just speaking about regarding what India is doing with new IT rules and you know what we saw with Australia doing, trying to push back against Facebook to protect um, news, essentially, in the Australian context. These are all examples, I think, of how um, um, as Sarah Roberts puts it in her chapter, which is called Your AI is Not Human, how these technologies have kind of run a game on us saying that they're neutral, that they're platforms, that they're intermediaries, that they're pass-throughs for information in particular, and that has never been true. Um, so there's always been content moderation, and there's also always been very specific decisions made for how to best approach um, markets in a way that is anything but neutral so that they can get the most ad dollars and, um, and not necessarily have to be responsible for any of the harms. They're protected, as Sarah Roberts, uh, Dr. Roberts talks about in her chapter, um, the protections of you know, the 1996 CDA and Section 230. And it's really, really interesting to see how that um, legislation has caused a lot of unintentional harms as technologies have scaled. Mara, follow up to you to bridge into uh, your chapter in the book as well. You just used this metaphor of, you know, bug versus feature, and uh, your chapter is called, or your essay is called, Sexism is a Feature, Not a Bug. Would you mind sharing a bit about that? Sure. Well, my chapter is called Sexism is a Feature, Not a Bug, because it's about a situation that looks at a, a nation that was computerizing the UK and was doing so pretty well early on. And then everything kind of goes to hell. And there was for a long time this discourse that that was due simply to um, American competition, that essentially IBM came in and beat the British computing industry. But when you look at it a bit closer, as I do in my chapter and I did in my um, book, Programmed Inequality, what you see is that Sexism, sexism was actually a really, really important flaw in the system of setting up a technological labor force. And I won't go into that too much here because I've, um, you know, you can read about that in the book, but I want to draw some connections between that chapter and a couple of other chapters that are making similar 
um, claims and, and have similar insights about different areas. So in one of the chapters, Dr. Halcyon Lawrence looks at voice recognition technologies and accent bias, and it's called Siri Disciplines, and it talks about the ways in which voice recognition technologies discipline users into speaking with essentially one of three um, uh, sort of what they claim are mainstream U.S. accents, even though the numbers of people who speak with those accents aren't actually as high as the people who speak English with different accents, so Australian, um, United States, and British accents. And Dr. Lauren shows how people who, like her, who, you know, she's from Trinidad um, and Tobago, and she has to speak with essentially a false accent, you know, code switch in order to be understood by these machines. Um, compare that, for instance, with Dr. Sophia Noble's uh, contribution to the book, where she talks about how robots are kind of reenacting these racist and sexist power relations, but because they are inanimate objects, or rather not conscious objects, there is an attempt to ignore the fact that we are rebuilding all of these really problematic power differentials in a new sphere and getting people, you know, real human people to interact with robots in a way that extends these really, really problematic assumptions and stereotypes in a lot of ways, especially when these robots are used to do things like replace workers, for instance. So the title of my chapter, it's um, it's kind of a through line, that theme in the in this book, that a lot of times things that are supposedly errors or bugs, they're actually really fundamental parts of how the system works. And maybe they didn't intend for that to be, you know, as negative as it was, but taking that out isn't a simple matter of patching a bug. It's actually, it's a feature. It's the way that the system holds together in a lot of ways, or the way that, um, you know, certain users get a lot of value from the system, while certain other users are completely left behind by it. I'm going to latch on to something that you mentioned earlier, Mar, and this perceived notion of neutrality that we tend to have for our technological systems. This seems to come up throughout the collection and something that um, Dylan and I found really just hard hitting to start off the collection in, in the introductory chapter was that um, the, the title, Your Computer is on Fire, is stated as a manifesto. And I found that really interesting. So I was wondering if uh, Mar Kavita, if either you could speak to why the word manifesto stood out to the editors and, and why you went with that language. Well, you probably noticed that the chapter structure, the title structure is X is Y, right? Every single chapter follows that structure for its title. We did work quite hard on that with the authors. And I would say for all of us, uh, that was the most challenging part and also the most exciting part for me is translating things that we already think we know, but we know in the context of a classroom or a research seminar, how do you translate that into a kind of to-do list for a public? At the same time, keeping the complexity of the history that we bring to it, not making that to-do list a kind of overly dumbed down list of things that supposedly anyone can do, um, we do think anyone can do it, but it will change you in doing it. You're not going to stay the same anyone who started it. This is not a to-do list, like a laundry list that leaves you the same at the end of the day. 
this is a manifesto because it calls on all of us to be willing to risk our sense of self, our sense of autonomous self-sovereign production and realize that we are made along with those robots and along with those low paid workers at the other end of the world, we are all constituted as collective relational subjects. And to that extent, this is a call for people to reimagine themselves in a different kind of world. One that we give you some outlines for, but it's by no means complete. The reader is part of that process. Yeah, and I think the title just being, um, you know, what it is, we really wanted the title to be both approachable and urgent and to make it clear that the people who are reading this book aren't alone. You know, it's your computer is on fire in a possessive sense, but in a very collective sense. It's all of our computer. And we have, you know, we have a responsibility to fix it. And we have we have the skills and power to fix it as as a collective or as groups of collectives who come together to do this and to get away from, you know, the sort of uh, atomizing people into, you know, neoliberal individual subjects and saying, well, make your choices by, you know, the personal choices you make, especially as a consumer. That's something that we've seen doesn't work. The free market is not going to solve these problems. Tech corporations can't police themselves. So now it's, um, it's a collective problem. It's a communal problem. And so that's why the title is sort of a call, a personal call to action in that way, but a call to action that's um, about acting in concert, not acting simply as individuals. One of the uh, areas, I guess, this uh, collection critiques is not just neutrality of technology, but also something called techno-utopianism. Um, and I'm wondering if, uh, in one of the taglines of the book is techno-utopianism is dead. And so I'm wondering um, if first, if you could define what techno-utopianism is for folks who don't know, but then also if we're no longer living in this techno-utopianism world, what world are we living in? I can give you a couple of examples to think through that. Uh, so techno-utopianism is the idea that technology gives us tools to fix thorny political and social problems. And so technology there appears as this uh, god from the sky, they use ex machina, you know, it drops down without any of the social historical problems that people have, because technology is supposedly separate from people. And now you've already got that hermetically sealed dualism that helps us think that there's a utopian hope coming from outside humans. We suggest humans and technology, um, things and words, histories and futures are co-produced. And therefore, we have a more complex process by which to think out what kinds of futures we want. It's not yet set. So here's an example of techno-utopianism. Maybe you look at the history of imperialism and say, oh, that was terrible. We really messed up the third world, right? And now we're going to fix it in this new era, and we're going to bring digital technology to these formerly colonized subjects, and they're all going to be good workers in this wonderful global economy, right? Now, Srila Sarkar in her chapter, Skills Will Not Set You Free, says, quote, popular skills programs in the third world, and she, she studies a program in Delhi, mainly produce employment at the lower rung of the information economy that is temporary, gendered, and vulnerable to exploitation. So there's a place where we can look at a project in the developing world that claims to bring a utopian solution to suffering and exploitation. And then we can look at histories like Mars programmed inequality and say, well, we've seen before 
how the production of supposedly meritocratic jobs in a global economy is in fact a reinscription of sexism and in many ways classism, right? And so then we can ask different questions. Are these skill, skills courses actually doing something other than a kind of charitable donation of skills to underskilled populations? Is it in fact producing a new low wage population that will serve the interests of big tech as they penetrate what is an unimaginably huge global market, 1.3 billion people waiting to be extracted with somebody's data plan. So you see how we have a simple ethnographic investigation that takes on different kinds of questions and global ramifications because we read these in tandem with each other. Yeah, and I love that um, you know you brought up Srila's chapter because it shows that so so clearly, and again, as you point out, there's a through line in other um, case studies in the book. So while you were talking, I was thinking, you know, not just about um, the connections that, you know, my chapter has to Srila's, but also um, Janet Abate's chapter in this book called Coding is Not Empowerment. Srila's chapter is called Skills Will Not Set You Free. So even in the titles, there's some similarity, but they're looking at very different cases. And Janet's looking at, um, coding camps and sort of reskilling programs that have been pitched in particular towards um, black women and girls and, and black people of all genders in the United States to say, look, you can retrain and you can essentially live, you know, the Silicon Valley uh, tech worker dream if you just learn to code. And what uh, Dr. Bate shows in her chapter is that in fact, again and again and again for really decades, this has been going on. And not only does it not work, it's also somewhat um, enacted in somewhat of a predatory way a lot of times. So people end up in debt in a lot of cases to these coding schools or uh, working, you know, like 80, 100 hour weeks for, for far less than they would have gotten had they gotten, for instance, um, you know, a CS degree at a university initially. And then the other thing that happens in this is something that's a through line in my work is that um, as Kavita uh, alluded to, once you are able to make these skills essentially more um, common, they become less valuable. So the people who benefit from being reskilled or upskilled, they exist in a small group at a very particular moment in time. But in general, who benefits from you know the proliferation of these skills isn't the labor force. It's the uh, corporations and the management who are trying to get more of these workers at cheaper rates and more easily so that they're more replaceable as a workforce. And so that if they um, try to flex their, their might as workers or say unionize, as we're seeing more and more tech workers try to do right now, that it's easier to simply replace them. You can't do that if the skills are a very scarce and valuable commodity. So there's a very, very important historical pattern of, um, labor de-skilling that we really need to be attentive to because the people who are the um, the highest rung of our skills economy, it's not 
because of their skills. That might sound counterintuitive, but it really isn't. It's because of everything that's going on around them. And to a large extent, as Kavita and Srila and Janet point out, it has to do also with who they are and the prestige that attaches to them as people, the, um, you know, the privilege that attaches to them as people, not simply, oh, you have these skills or you're, you're doing this. And so um, you're rising to the top of a meritocracy. That's really historically not what's going on. And it's not what's going on now either. And we're, we're starting to see that more clearly. I'll add a couple of things to uh, that wonderful elucidation of the links among chapters. The other chapters that really speak together are, for instance, Andrea Stanton's Broken is Word, which, as you can imagine, is meant to read also right to left, word is broken. Uh, and Tom Mullaney's chapter, Typing is Dead. Uh, both of them point out that, okay, maybe a reader might think you're just talking about people exploiting people, but my actual objects are neutral, aren't they? The typewriter keyboard, the machine I work on, the server cable that links me uh, across the, the Atlantic, right? Surely these are neutral. We've already seen that Sophia Noble's chapter tells us, no, well, robots are not neutral. They, em they embed histories of sexism and racism. Andrea tells us, uh, that because typewriters were designed with a left-right script in mind, uh, quote, Arabic script is seen as a particularly thorny challenge. And she unpacks that to tell us why, in fact, this construction of Arabic as thorny and even, quote, pathological as a script originates in kind of Orientalist understandings of the language itself, right? So we see ways in which a 30-year history of the study of Orientalism, the representation of Middle Eastern cultures as backward and pathological, come to rest within the design of our keyboards. Uh, keyboards sorry. And then we see Tom, who tells us through his work on the Chinese typewriter, that in fact, the Anglophone keyboard is what is an ethnocentric assumption, that making that universal is the problem of design that lies at the heart of how we understand machines today. So we've introduced quite a few fires or quite a few problems that um, this collection discusses in detail. And you also mentioned earlier, Mar, about how um, there is mention of the collective power that we can have to help uh, solve or at least start to solve some of these problems. So without giving anything away, I'm wondering if maybe we can have a little bit of a sneak peek of what some of that solution space looks like. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to speak to that. And I'm, I'm happy to give away as much as I can, because, um, yeah, I, I would really like to see these problems solved. And you've gotten hints of some of the things that we need to do um, so far, especially through, you know, everything that Kavita has been outlining regarding the, the history of um, colonization, the history of imperialism, the ways in which these global power differences have um, not just you know, it's not just that they're not passed yet, they're actively reconstituting a lot of the power relationships that are getting built into our technologies. So one of the things is to, you know, look for political solutions. And the book talks in detail about some of the ways to do that. And Kavita's chapter um, about um, decolonizing tech, decolonizing the internet, and, you know, really looking to activists and learning from activists, I think is so important. Um, one of the things that I'll say for my part is that I'm very heartened, you know, you said, 
well, if we're not in a techno-utopian moment anymore, what moment are we in right now? So we could be very pessimistic and we can say we're in a dystopian moment, or we could say, you know, we're we're in a dystopian moment, but we're we're sort of activating to recognize that, you know, we never had a shot at utopianism because that's that's not a real thing. And so one of the things I find really heartening right now is how labor forces are are coming together and more and more realizing that um, white collar labor forces have to organize uh, labor forces that are working for tech companies who are you know working in really really terrible terrible conditions like in Amazon warehouses or driving for Uber. They are um, finding ways to organize more and more. I think labor organizations organization is absolutely essential to this moment. Looking from the U.S. perspective in particular, we need to have two things, or at least two things, happening at once. And one of those things is the sort of bottom-up grassroots activism and labor organization, and then pressure on our elected officials to do top-down regulation of these industries, to break up industry or break up corporations that have become honestly so powerful that they have become pseudo-governmental almost. They are affecting the political contours of the United States and the world in ways that you might expect from, um, from a government, from government agencies, not private corporations. And that's incredibly problematic. And then the other thing too is, you know, we've been talking a lot about um, the political context and the economic context, um, I'll just flag that, you know, one of the really critical things that connects, of course, to both is our environment, our, our context of, um, okay, what, uh, where are we going to get clean drinking water? Who is going to be allowed to have that clean drinking water? There are people in the United States right now who uh, have been without clean drinking water for weeks because essentially of infrastructures um, being privatized. And so they, they just don't have uh, drinking water now in a disaster. And um, Nathan Ensminger's chapter, The Class is a factory, I think is really good on this issue of, okay, let's really think about how these cloud technologies or how computing technologies that seem relatively clean, they seem somewhat ephemeral in a lot of cases when we're talking about software or we're talking about information, how they're anything but. They're rooted in very similar industrial um, logics in similar ways of leveraging and honestly abusing the infrastructure of our environment. And it's making things much worse in sort of exactly the ways we don't want at exactly the moment we don't want. So if I were going to, you know, give one catchphrase for what kind of a moment we're in, we're in a moment of, you know, resistance. We're in a moment of maybe approaching something like a computing revolution. You know, we never really had a computer revolution. We use that term a lot, but the power structures didn't change. That's not a revolution. So maybe we're approaching that moment. I don't know. One can hope, right? Yeah, I love that. Um, we're almost out of time, but I'll underscore again how, um, you know, these X is Y structure chapters are not complaints as much as they are pointing towards revolutionary solutions. For example, Corina Schlons in her chapter, Gender is a Corporate Tool, outlines how IBM's Thomas Watson managed IBM like a quote unquote family and what that does. And uh, here's a line from Corina's chapter. Watson's model of equal individualistic workers meant that workers always confronted management alone. This weakened their position. 
and deprived both men and women of a say in IBM's corporate affairs. And so this reminds us that looking at people as individualistic, atomized workers doesn't empower them, right? It is underscoring the way that collectivity empowers all of us and that these kind of gendered, raced, class-based, imperialism-focused analyses actually are not just complaints. We're not just a bunch of people whining, but we're people trying to figure out how to work this together. So I'll say a bit from my uh, final chapter where I say, okay, if we shouldn't break things, move fast, you know, mix and stir, what should we do? And I say, what we can, as, as historians, sociologists, anthropologists, what we can tell you is that language, history, and politics matter, right? We can tell you what we think matters, and then it's up to us to build this conversation and practice together. And so I say, quote, to navigate the complexities of power, we should pin our hopes not on axiomatic rule-based ethics, nor on the hope of finding value-neutral data. We should look instead to the conversations we need to make, I say, among technologists, political theorists, activists, and academics. And so um, this revolution comes in conversation and exchange as difficult as it is. We urge you to take this book to your own workplaces and have those conversations in ways that might be completely different from ours, but will be in dialogue with the histories that we summon up, we hope. Kavita, the title of that uh, last chapter, uh, which is how to stop worrying about clean signals and start loving the noise is just, that's such a powerful metaphor. And I'm wondering as, as we close this interview um, for you both, I guess just say a sentence about what, what do you hope the impact that this collection is gonna have? Um, maybe in 10 years looking back, like if you had just like one thing um, that you'd like this to change in the conversation, what would that be? Well, I want to say to people, don't be afraid of complexity. That axiomatic rule-based ethics has been so powerful. You know, if you look back to any supposedly thorny period in science and technology, we seem to come out of it with a set of rules and we think we've solved it, right? So uh, human subjects research. Okay, I've got my IRB permissions. I'm going to go, you know, be ethical. Okay, great. But are you really having difficult conversations in the context that you're working in? We had LC, the ethical, legal, and scientific impacts of the Human Genome Project. And once again, we had ethics commissions, but we didn't necessarily have some kind of difficult conversations that we could have had. And again, I would say in this proto-revolutionary context, we could have all kinds of discussions if we didn't flinch from the complexity of the influences and the possibilities of the multiple futures ahead of us. And there I'm really inspired by my, my youngest students. The undergrads coming into our classes uh, are just incredibly fearless and they're not afraid of uh, taking things apart and building it up together. So I would say I take my cue from the next generation and we're here to follow, not lead that conversation. Yeah, I 100% second all of that. And I'll say that really, you know, I, I wrote this book largely for my undergrads, with my undergrads in mind, and the sorts of questions that they were asking in the classroom and the sorts of really thorny 
difficult, um, you know, moral and ethical problems they were having. They're mostly engineers. They're mostly people who are training to go into um, CS and other engineering fields. And they would say, okay, what, what do we do? What can we do? You know, they, they saw the problems. And once they, you know, understood the complexities, they, they really, really wanted to not live their lives as, you know, conscientious cogs in a broken system. And so, if there's one thing that I hope this volume does, I hope that, and you know, we do try to do this. It's not, it's not all a downer, a title notwithstanding. Um, I hope it gives people hope and starts to help them realize their power. You know, they have power. We have power to change these systems. And it's very hard to see that we do until we really start exercising that power. And so I would just hope that if nothing else, this volume gives, you know, people who are maybe similar to my students, the idea that they are not trapped and they don't have to think, oh, you know, if I don't do it, somebody else will do it. That's not true. Um, there are always ways, as Kavita pointed out, to do things differently or to make different, better futures. And um, we're going to, you know, we're going to stumble in getting there. We're definitely not going to get there easily, but it's possible. And we're seeing, I think, right now, how it's becoming more possible than it was in certainly in the 1990s at the height of technophilia, even in the early 2000s. You know, we're really seeing this is the moment to seize. Um, and so I'm hopeful that this volume will maybe be helpful in this moment. That's what, um, that's what I'm uh, rooting for. Well, Mar and Kavita, thank you so much for seizing this moment with this collection, which by the way, for those listening, if you want access to this or you want to buy your own copy, we have plenty of links in our show notes as well as information for how you can explore Mar and Kavita's research and scholarship a little bit further. But for now, thank you so much to the both of you for joining us today for this wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Ah, Jess, what an awesome interview, an awesome collection. And I'm so excited that this collection is out in the world right now. And like, it, it's a few days after we recorded uh, the interview. And I'm still like, I still have chills from some of the things that, that Mar and Kavita said. And I'm wondering, first, if you feel the same way. And second, if, uh, you know, what, what stood out to you in, in this interview now that it's been a few days since we conducted it? Yeah, it's really awesome that this was the first interview we've ever done about a book that was about to come out where they actually sent us a preprint version of it. I felt like very VIP when they were willing to give that us access to it. And uh, also, I, it's amazing because now we can say firsthand, go get this book because it's actually really amazing. And if you aren't captured within the first few sentences of the introduction, then I don't know what else to tell you because it's so well written. And Which is to say you, you, you will be. And <laughs> if, if you are an amazing scholar in the responsible technology or AI ethics space, and you have a book that you would like us to freely check out in advance, uh, we would have, but again, thank you, seriously, thank you to, to MIT Press for providing a, a press copy for us to be able to prepare for this uh, interview. 
Yeah. And of course, we also would love to read the rest of your books because now both Dylan and I have uh, sections of AI ethics and responsible tech books in both of our bookshelves at our homes, and we are looking to build the collection. So very happy to be adding another book to that collection. And now on to the book. <laughs> so um, I think one of my first takeaways from this conversation was when Mar Hicks was talking about their chapter on, or I guess their essay, on sexism being a feature and not a bug. And this was really interesting because it was actually one of the first times that I heard this framing. And since the interview, I've heard it like once or twice more. And so I feel like it's going to probably keep coming up again. It's like one of those people where like, once you meet them, you see them everywhere. And then you realize that they already were everywhere and you just didn't know who they were. <laughs> and so I, I think for me personally, I've been thinking about things like sexism and racism and discrimination and like inequity as they exist in algorithms as bugs. That's that's what I've thought about in my mind when I think about the framing of the problem and then also the framing of the solution and this like flipping of the narrative, this infrastructure inversion, if I want to put my theory cap on, of thinking about them as a feature and something that's explicitly put into the system is uh, it's just a really interesting reframing. And I've been thinking about that a lot since this interview. Yeah, not even that it's put into the system, but that it is the system, right? Like the mm. system itself would not function without uh, these isms underneath about sexism, racism. Like they were built out of the same meta systems or social systems, right? And the technology is not separate for, from that, which I think is just, first of all, is just super overwhelming to think about, right? <laughs> but also is, um, I, I think, spot on. And, and for me, like, I just, I keep coming back to that chapter, Kavita's chapter essay about, uh, that's titled How to Stop Worrying About Clean Signals and Start Loving the Noise. Because after this interview and reading through these essays in this book, I'm like, yeah, this stuff is still so overwhelming. And we talk about that and I've like yelled about it before in some of our outros. Um, but, but maybe the solution, quote unquote, is not to find a solution, but is, at least not yet, but is to first know what noise and what like static we're in in the first place. Um, because sometimes I, I think that we jump too much to that solution space, which is really just going to replicate those features um, and keep us thinking of them as bugs and not and not features. So I, I just love that that framing and that metaphor. I, I'm going to come back to that a lot. Definitely. Well, that was one of the reasons why I loved also that um, both Kavita and Mar encouraged, or I guess they, they sort of explained that this was not uh, an essay of complaints. <laughs> like this is not a book just full of people complaining about the system. And I think um, just to kind of highlight that thought for a second, because this is something that the AI ethics community, I think, gets a lot of flack for is the fact that we're like constantly complaining. I'm using air quotes, you can't see, but I'm air quote complaining about um, all the things that we are actually just critiquing. And I personally, I do think that maybe critique can go a little bit too far. And so there is like a, a place, a time and a place for that. But complaint doesn't really have to be seen as a negative thing. And honestly, I don't really think that the AI ethics community is complaining when when they're being accused of complaining. I think that um, as Mar and Kavita were saying, it's actually just an acknowledgement. And so maybe uh, acknowledgements sound like complaints when the system is broken. <laughs> and uh, I think maybe that's a lot of what this essay is getting at is acknowledging a broken system. 
so that we can begin to start working together to take that acknowledgement and that awareness of what is broken to work together towards building solutions. And I think one thing that needs to happen in order for us to begin working together is that we need to continue to see leadership that we've been seeing, uh, especially within the past you know six months um, with uh, Tim Nett at Google and, and other folks who are speaking out against these systems of oppression and abuses of power um, in in these spaces. But another way to to lead is through what we saw uh, Mar and Kavita doing in this episode, which is centering the work and centering the voices of so many folks that uh, maybe people listening to this program haven't necessarily heard of before, but you need to <laughs> because they're uh, real real f- uh, forces from a very interdisciplinary space, all talking about this topic of how do we transform these systems that are so deeply embedded uh, with these oppressive tendencies. And so I do want to give a a quick shout out to the other two editors of this collection, Benjamin Peters and Thomas Milani. they uh, did, a, I mean, really, like, just check out the book. <laughs> but um, they're, uh, they're um, so that I think as Mar and Kavita said, each of the editors took either an introduction or took an afterword. And then in the, the center of the book, it was uh, the other contributors and also some of their work. And I just think they did an amazing job of curating this collection. And then again, centering the work that needs to be centered right now. Have we sold you on the book yet? Have you have you bought it yet? Because if we you, will. We... You, we can keep going. <laughs> but if you haven't bought the book yet and you're looking for where to do that, you can do that in our show notes. And also, um, we wanted to make sure to mention, because this is important to the editors of the collection, that if you have the ability, please order the book through a local indie bookstore near you. And if you don't know where you can find a local store that sells this book, we have a link in our show notes that will help you find the closest one near to you. Yeah, and this doesn't just stop at, at this book, right? <laughs> like, go go support your your local uh, indie bookstores everywhere for any of the books that, that you are buying. We're not coming out against various companies that may have a, a corner on the market of it's online just, stores. Just one company. <laughs> Could be anyone. <laughs> I'm using air quotes as well. Um, but no, no, please do. It's it's important, especially this year in which um, indie bookstores have been hit so hard in COVID and, and many have had to close. So uh, please, even if it is like a little bit more expensive or you have to go out of your way or you have to wait a little longer, it's so important. And so in order to check out those links and also for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you, as always, to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Catch our new episodes every other week on Wednesdays, and sometimes catch our bonus episodes on Sundays. And join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And I feel like I've said and a lot here, <laughs> um, but as always... I'm going to replace the and with the but. But it's not. It's yes and. Yes and as always... Stay radical. (laughs) We like to follow the rules of improv here. Radical AI. Everything's a yes and.